Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Revelation chapter 20. This is part two. So some of it I'm not going to actually go into much detail because we talked about it uh, last week. So if you uh, if I mention some stuff, you go, oh, I wonder, you know, I don't think he mentioned anything about that. I encourage you, you can get online and you can listen to the teaching online. But Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, we'll start with. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So in this chapter, Satan has been cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. During those thousand years, Jesus is going to reign physically on the earth from Jerusalem. And the saints, which hopefully all of you here are saints, uh, you and I, if we have a personal relationship with the Lord, we are going to be ruling with Jesus in our resurrection bodies during the, um, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. At the end of the thousand years, the scripture tells us that Satan's going to be released and he'll be deceiving the nations. And we know from what we just read here earlier in chapter 20 that there's going to be a worldwide rebellion at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. But that begs the question, and I answered some questions last week, but I left one question off, and it's probably, the, to me, it's the most kind of thought-provoking question is, why the millennium? Why is Jesus, I mean, why don't we just, why doesn't Jesus just end Earth's program right then and there, and we go off into heaven, and that's it? Why the millennium? And so that's what we want to focus today, this morning. And I have a short answer. I'm going to expound on it, of course, but the short answer is God is removing all of the excuses that man has during the millennium, and we'll look at that here. Uh, in Romans uh, 3, verse 4, Paul says, Let God be true, and every, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome them uh, and overcome when you are judged. So God is removing all of man's excuses. And I want you to think this through with me. First of all, there will be a removal of spiritual forces of wickedness from the earth during the millennium. We know that Satan's going to be cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. It doesn't say in Scripture, but I think we can assume, I think safely assume, that the demons, those followers that rebelled with Satan, will be cast there also. 
Remember the story in the Gospels, in Luke, Luke's Gospel, among others, uh, where Jesus went to the area of the Gadarenes, and there was a guy there that was in the, he was kind of lurking around in the tombs, and he was demon-possessed, and he, in fact, he had thousands of demons, multiple demons, and, and, and he came running up to Jesus, and Jesus was going to cast the demons out, and in Luke 8, verse 31, it says, they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. The abyss, that's the same, the abuso is what it's called, but it's the bottomless pit. It's the same place. So these demons, they don't want to go to this bottomless pit. And they asked Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. And Jesus allowed them to go into some swine that were hurting in that, in that area. We also know from Jude's letter that there are some incredibly wicked demons at the time of the flood, of Noah's flood, that had relations with humans, and it resulted in the race of giants. Goliath was a descendant of them. Uh, In Jude 1 verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. These we assume also are in that bottomless pit, those demons, the wickedest of the wicked demons. Uh, so during the thousand years, during the millennium, it's also known as the kingdom age, spiritual forces of wickedness, including Satan himself, will be bound in the bottomless pit. So what's the result of that? Well, demonic influence, demonic temptation will be non-existent during most of the millennium, excuse me, up until the very end. And so one of the excuses mankind will not be able to say is, the devil made me do it. You guys remember, uh, I think it was Josephine, no, Geraldine, uh, Flip Wilson, you guys know. Maybe you don't. If you were too young, he was a comedian. He always said, the devil made me do it, you know, when he played that skit, but. Mankind won't be able to say that during the millennium. They won't be able to blame demonic forces for their sin, for their rebellion. What's the issue? Well, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 kind of lays it out, and we'll be talking about it again later. But the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So mankind, they're not going to be able to uh, blame the demons for what they're doing. It's the heart that's the problem. Not only that, but the physical curse of sin on the earth itself will be removed during the millennium. Those physical judgments that we studied in earlier chapters that are going on during the tribulation, they're going to be preparing the earth physically for the millennial kingdom. Remember earlier, back in chapter 16, when we talked about the bowl judgments, the seventh bowl judgment, chapter 16, verse 18 through 20, it says, And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. So no islands will exist as we know them. So if you're going to go to Hawaii, you better go now, because by the millennium, they probably won't even be there. No more mountains as we know them, will exist. All the magnificent cities of the earth, you know, New York, Paris, all these Brussels, I mean, all these fancy cities, Amsterdam, all over with their skyscrapers, their bridges, their architectural uh, wonders, it's all going to be reduced to rubble 
there at the end of the Great Tribulation. Dr. Henry Morris from the Creation Institute, he says this, These great land movements will also have eliminated the great mountain ranges and islands of the world, filling up the ocean depths and restoring gentle, globally habitable topography and geography all over the world, as it had been in the antediluvian age, that's before the flood is what that means, before the great cataclysmic upheavals of the great deluge, deluge, excuse me, It's going to be a literal fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 4, that says this, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. And we know John the Baptist quoted that, right, in in his ministry coming. But but physically, that's going to be fulfilled at the time of the great, uh, uh, the time of the millennium, I should say. I believe personally... And I think scripture backs it up that the highest elevation on the earth, everything's going to be kind of more rolling hills, but the highest elevation during the millennium will be Mount Zion itself, where the millennial temple will be, where Jesus will be reigning. Isaiah 2 verse 2, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Remember, during the first week of creation, in Genesis 1, verse 7, it says, Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And scientists, creation scientists anyways, believe that there was this vapor canopy surrounding the globe, surrounding the planet. And prior to the flood, uh, it would have filtered out any harmful solar radiation, so that those, those rays that deteriorate human bodies, you know, what, they were filtered out. There would be worldwide moderate temperatures, and animals and humans would, as a result of this, um, like being in a greenhouse, would live hundreds of years. And, you know, it kind of makes me personally speculate, and I'm not a scientist, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert, but what if the dinosaurs, what if the dinosaurs uh, are just, now extinct large lizards that just lived and lived and lived for hundreds and hundreds of years and just grew big. I mean, it's possible. Um, I don't know. Again, I'm not an expert. And I'm sure uh, some evolutionary scientists would have a field day with that if I said that. But it makes me wonder about that. So that was prior to the flood. Totally different topography than what we know now. But then the flood came. We read in Genesis 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So during that time, following the reasoning of this vapor canopy, it condensed into torrential downpours of rainfall. Opening up, now, now that canopy is gone, those, those rays can can penetrate the atmosphere. Lifespans would dramatically be decreased and there'd be extreme temperatures uh, across the globe. In fact, I think that's probably where the first ice age occurred during that, right after the flood. Well, Dr. Morris theorizes that the increased heat from the fourth bowl judgment in Revelation 16 also, combined with the droughts 
uh, of the first half of the tribulation. And then remember there was something like an asteroid or something or whatever it was that hit the ocean from the second trumpet judgment in Revelation chapter 8. All of those events that are occurring during the tribulation would combine together to send aloft uh, all, a large amount of water vapor into the atmosphere. And it would be like creating another vapor canopy across the, across the globe again. Not only that, but he surmises the great earthquakes and the great shifting of the Teutonic plates. You know, all the continents are on a plates just kind of floating around. Uh, the lowering of the mountains and all that. All those stuff uh, could force large amounts of water back beneath the earth uh, to repercolate and repurify the springs of water that are beneath the earth. All those things that are occurring. Let me, let me read this to you in Ezekiel 47 verse 1. It says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. This is during the millennium. And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. This is during the millennium. It continues in verse 8 of Ezekiel 47. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi to En Eglam. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. So you, and then uh, Joel says this, this is another prophet. Not Joel in the back, although he might say it, but uh, Joel uh, chapter 3, verse 17 says, you, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy. This is speaking again of the millennium. And no alien shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and the water, uh, and water the valley of Acacias. So not only is the geography of the earth going to be completely changed during the millennium, but if in fact that water, that vapor canopy exists against, again, once more uh, above the earth, it's going to explain the longer lifespans of people that will be during the millennium. Uh, this, this is another prophecy regarding the millennium. Isaiah 65, verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Now, I, I don't think all of this is just because of the physical changes of the earth. Uh, but listen, the curse of sin is going to be lifted during the millennium. It's just going to have a compounding, healthy effect. Uh, you know, life is going to be so much better during the millennium. In fact, Malachi 4.2 prophesies this. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. That doesn't fat in a bad way, but you know, healthy you know, mankind's health is going to be so much more uh, better with the lifting of the curse during the millennium.
You also recall before the flood in Genesis chapter 9, verse 2, it says, In the fear of you, Jesus, or the God is speaking to Noah there after the flood. He says, In the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are giving in, given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So it almost sounds like before the flood, mankind were vegetarians. Um, It could be. But during the millennium, look what it says here, Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 8. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's den. Here's another prophecy, Isaiah 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So listen, I love meat. Anybody like meat here? (laughs) I'm a meat eater, okay? I love meat. If you like meat, you better eat as much as you can before the millennium because I think we might be back to being vegetarians again. So anyways, I think about those things. But you know, all these things that I've been reading, and some of these things we talked about last week, but all these things that I've been been reading to you, it's almost as if God is returning creation back to what it was prior to uh, to Noah's flood, even back into the time of the Garden of Eden. In fact, another prophecy, Ezekiel 36, 35 says this, So they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the wasted and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Now I know today there's a big push for saving the planet, right? Protecting the environment and stuff. And and I think as Christians we should be good stewards. We really should be good stewards of our environment. But you know what? I have this theory. Why try to fix something that's beyond repair? And, uh, you know, God's going to right all the environmental wrongs. I'd rather just let him do it. <laughs> and I'm not going to get too focused on it. But I'm, I'm, don't take that wrong. But uh, I think we should be good stewards. Listen, the earth's going to be quite a bit like, I believe, quite a bit like it was prior to the flood. Maybe even like the Garden of Eden uh, during the millennium. The only exception is that sin and death will not have been destroyed yet. Um, That occurs at the end of the millennium. Now, if you've been listening to this and you're reading, you know, know, there's a lot of Christians. In fact, I was talking to another pastor uh, last week, and and, uh, he was like, uh, he's another Calvary Chapel pastor. So, So what are you teaching? This was actually the week prior to last week. And I said, oh, I'm teaching Revelation chapter 20. He goes, you know, you and I, and a few handful of other pastors are in a minority in Christendom. Because a minority of even of Christians, what I just described to you about the millennium, it seems too far-fetched. It seems too fantastic to be true. 
In fact, it's, it's too literal of an interpretation. And so what a lot of Christians, they end up doing is they spiritualize away all these amazing king, kingdom age prophecies. If you believe literal translation of the Bible, literal interpretation, I should say, we're in a minority, even among Christians. But I wonder if you were to talk to Noah before the flood and tell him all the things. You know, he's 500 years old. Say, hey, Noah, after the flood, people are going to live maybe 120 years if they're lucky. Do you think he'd believe it? He'd go, that, oh, man, that's, that's too far-fetched. I can't, I can't believe that. And yet that's exactly what happened. The world was completely different after the flood. So for those that would take this kind of a, 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 a they look at these prophecies and say, man, I just, it's just, no, it's unbelievable. I can't, I can't imagine that. Well, if, just think about Noah and what it was like before the flood. So what am I getting at with all, you know, all this stuff I've been sharing about how, you know, the animals are going to, they're, they're going to be at peace with each other. You know, uh, the little kids can play at the, with the cobras and not get bit. And, you know, it, almost like having the earth like the Garden of Eden again. You know, what's the reason behind it? Again, remember, God's removing any excuses. During the millennium, people will not be able to blame their rebellion on their environment that they were raised in. There won't be any slums. There won't be any shanty towns. People will not have grown up in a rough neighborhood. It's going to be a tremendously different environment for people to, to, uh, to live in. Everyone's going to have access to the same health resources, the same natural resources, the same clean environment. No one is going to grow up disadvantaged. Not only that, but remember back earlier, the commercial Babylon was destroyed at the end of the Great Tribulation. Think of all the greed and sin that is associated with the love of money today. The murders that are occurring, the, the, the robberies, the, the, the fraud, all the things that are going on for the sake of the love of money. That's all going to be gone during the millennium. There will be some sort of righteous economic system. And the Bible doesn't really go into much detail, but I'm going to read this to you. It's in Micah chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. And you're probably familiar with this passage. It says, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now, one of the things that we all realize, it's speaking about when it talks about swords being churned to plowshares and spears to pruning hooks. We understand that that means that it's going from a, an environment or a culture of war to a culture of peace. Okay, that's a, that's a, a very uh, accurate interpretation. But I wonder, I just wonder if it could literally also mean literal plowshare, plowshares and literal pruning hooks being transformed into farm implements. In other words, that society is going to return to agrarian, you know, a farming kind of society again once more. That the, the, the whole need for the stock market and money and stuff, it won't exist maybe during the millennium. Listen, you've heard this from politicians, right? The war on poverty. Everyone promises to fight the war on poverty. During the millennium, the war on poverty will have been won. Not by a politician, 
but by Jesus himself. Isaiah 65, verse 21 says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. We know this also, Zechariah 14.14. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Now, I'm not a fan of communism, but maybe there's going to be some kind of a righteous distribution. You know, I don't know. Uh, Equitable redistribution. I I have no idea. Uh, So I don't know about those things. I'm just speculating. But what we do know, we do know that Jesus is going to rule in righteousness from Jerusalem physically during the millennium. We do know that the saints will be resurrected to reign with him in our glorified bodies without our sin nature. I can't wait for that. Uh, There will be no way for you and I in our glorified bodies, that flesh is gone, nobody's going to be able to bribe you to judge unfairly. No one's going to be able to influence you or buy you off by money. There's going to be no greed, for us anyways, no bribery. The golden rule will no longer apply. You go, what? You know that rule. The one with all the gold makes the rules. That ain't going to apply anymore during the millennium. So what am I getting at? People are not going to be able to blame economics for sin. Today, people have all kinds of excuses for why they are or why they do the things that they do, and economics will not be one of those reasons. God's removing that excuse during the millennium. Not only was commercial Babylon destroyed at the end of the Great Tribulation, but spiritual Babylon was destroyed at the start of the Great Tribulation, which means no false religions will exist during the millennium. Atheism will be non-existent during the millennium. There will be no, and you've probably heard these arguments from unbelievers, you know, as you try sharing the gospel with someone that says, well, what about the person that never heard the gospel, you know, out in some island in Timbuktu or something? Or I've heard this one personally, you know, you just happen to be a Christian because you were raised in a Judeo-Christian culture. If you had been raised in a, in a culture that was, you know, Islamically influenced, you would be Muslim. You know, that's, that's the arguments that people say. Listen, during the millennium, that won't wash. Everyone will know the Lord, the Bible says. Zechariah 8, verse 20 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Isaiah says this, chapter 2, verse 3, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Pastors won't even have a job during the millennium. Jesus is going to be teaching the Bible studies from Jerusalem. You can't wait for that, I bet. (laughs) But listen... No one's going to be able to blame spiritual ignorance for their rebellion. 
No one's going to be able to blame that. Jerusalem's going to be the spiritual, political, and judicial power of the world during the millennium. Ezekiel 5.5 says, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. You know, I'm just going to stop here for a moment. You know, some people that don't believe in a millennium, that uh, you know, a pre, uh, post-tribulation millennium, they're amillennialists. Uh, one of the things they'll say, you know, you look at the New Testament and there's just like 10 verses that speak about this thousand-year reign. You know, where's all the scripture backing it up? Well, all that scripture's in the Old Testament. It doesn't need to be repeated there in, in the book of Revelation. There's so much in the Old Testament. Listen, during the millennium, sin and rebellion will not be tolerated. God's going to rule in righteousness, and we're going to rule with him in our glorified bodies. Revelation 12.5, you recall, it says that, that the image that John saw of that woman in heaven, it says, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. Uh, that's not the one I'm thinking of, <laughs> sorry. Um, but Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 5.5, 5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. Uh, here's the verse I was thinking about. <laughs> Revelation 12.5. It's when John saw that image of the woman. It says, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. This is speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name one. Zechariah 14, verse 16 through 19. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will come will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come uh, up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. Fascinating prophecies regarding the millennium. Speaking of Egypt... There's another fascinating prophecy, and I remember when Sammy Tanago was here, he shared this with us, and I had never thought of it before. But Isaiah 19, verse 22 through 25, it says this, And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That's awesome prophecy when you think about it. God loves the Muslim people today. God loves them and wants them to come to the knowledge of him. Now, whether the above verses occurred during the millennium or before, um, it hasn't happened yet, right? We know that now, but it will at some point. 
It's so encouraging to hear that. Be that as it may, what we're told in that other prophecy I read earlier, the Feast of Tabernacles will still be observed during the millennium. It's like, well, that's kind of interesting. We also know from Ezekiel 40 through 48 about the millennial temple. King David will be resurrected and serve as his prince. We talked about that last week. The Levitical priesthood will be reinstated. In fact, there will be sacrifices and offerings during the millennium. That seems kind of strange, right? But you see, the thing is, instead of them being uh, offered to cover men's sin as under the old covenant, it's purely going to be a memorial. Kind of like the way you and I celebrate communion today, to remember back on what Jesus Christ did on the cross under the new covenant. So summing all of this up, God's going to remove all the excuses. Any excuse a person has for rebelling against him, uh, save for one. It's not demonic oppression or demonic possession that's going to lead a person into sin. It's not going to be their environment. You know, they grew up on the wrong side of the track, so they just never had the opportunities. It's, that won't be an excuse. It's not their social economic status. That won't be an excuse. They can't even claim false teaching. I was deceived by false teachers. God's going to prove once for all that there is one reason for man's rebellion against him. And going back, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, I think about our sin nature. And, you know, sometimes we think, you know, we're sinners because we sin. But that's not true. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because by our nature, our fallen nature, we are sinners. We're prone to sin, as that one song, that one hymn goes. We're prone to sin. You know, last week, we were here last week, we spoke about the population explosion that's going to occur during the millennium. If you want to listen to it, listen to last week's teaching. Um, But just take my word for it. Again, you can dig into it and study yourself. But there's going to be a population explosion during the millennium. Verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And a person might say, well, why in the world would God release Satan at the end of the millennium to deceive the world again? It just does not make sense. Let me ask you this, if that's what you're thinking. Why would God allow Satan to roam the earth to deceive the nations for thousands of years after he rebelled in the first place? Why did God do it in the first time? I don't know the answer to that one either. All I know is, in some way, God, uh, God, uh, Satan's rebellion, excuse me, serves God's purposes in a way that I can't, I can't explain to you, and I don't think anyone will be able to understand this side of eternity. Now, you might also be saying, "Well, wait a minute, Satan's being released 
and he's deceiving the nations. Can't they go to God and say, well, hey, I was deceived. You know, it's just like Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? She was deceived. That was her blame. In fact, mankind forever has always had an excuse for our sin rather than saying it's just my wicked heart. We've always blamed someone else or something else. And it's true. They will have been deceived by the end of the great millennium, but it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. They will have been raised and grown in a good environment just like the Garden of Eden. There'll be a thousand years of everything just being right on the planet. A thousand years of pure teaching from Jesus, the shepherd, the good shepherd himself. And because the heart of man, because remember sin has not been dealt with at this point yet. And because the heart of man is wicked, they're going to choose to believe the lie Satan's deception and they're going to rebel. Now, some of you are younger, you may not remember this, but those of us that are older, we probably remember it very well. Not the kids, okay, I'm going to say this. Not the children, but the adults that drank the Kool-Aid. You ever heard that phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid? That comes from Jonestown. That was Jim Jones. He was a cult leader back in, I think, I think it was either late 60s, early 70s, or whatever. Um, he led a bunch of people down to Jonestown, Guiana, I think it was. And uh, when the feds were closing in on them, they gave everybody Kool-Aid to drink that was laced with, I don't know, arsenic or some poison, and, and hundreds of people died. Now, the children, I, you know, I, they were innocent in that. The adults that drank the Kool-Aid, they were deceived, but it's not an excuse. Even for them, it was an excuse. Listen, if you're and everybody here is in this church, but if you're in a church that teaches off-base biblically, they're not teaching the gospel pure, I mean, they're not, they're, they're, there's something off in their teaching, or maybe you're in a cult. Some people blamed us for being in a cult, but, I, <laughs> but you know, maybe you're in a cult. You are being deceived, but again, it's not an excuse. Why? Because you have God's word. You have the word of God. God's truth is in your and my hands. You know, false teachers are going to incur a much stricter judgment from God, but it doesn't leave their followers off the hook. Think about the Nuremberg trials during, you know, after World War II. Those, those Nazis, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the soldiers, a lot of the officers, they wanted to blame, you know, I was just following orders, you know, and stuff. That wasn't an excuse then. They're responsible for what they knew. You and I are responsible for what we know. In the words of a famous person, I pity the fool that doesn't study the word of God himself or herself to know if these things are true. Man, we have the word of God here to study. There's no excuse for us, for it. Well, let's move on here. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
Remember last week, the first resurrection refers to all those who are under the old covenant, looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ by faith to the coming of the Messiah, their Savior, and all those who under the new covenant, which would include you and I, we look back and we put our trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. In either case, you, uh, you and I and the Old Testament saints, we are not under, uh, we're not going to be affected by the second death, which is the lake of fire. It has no power over you and I. I hope you're happy. If you're, if you're bummed out about anything today, this is one thing to be happy about. We're not, we're not under the curse of the second death. I believe those saints, you and I and the Old Testament saints, will not be at this judgment. But it talks about the second resurrection. All those alive at the end of the millennium who rebelled, they'll be part of that second resurrection. All those in the graves whether they were buried at sea or in the land or cremated or whatever, all of the unrighteous dead will be resurrected. That's the second resurrection. The wicked dead, they'll be raised physically to stand before God to have judgment passed on them. You might say, well, how can, how can someone, be, you know, their body was spread, you know, cast, buried at sea and some shark ate part of them and, you know, a crab ate another part. You know, you know how, how could it happen? How can, or a cremated person, how can God bring out, he, man, he can do anything, okay? It's not, a, it's not an issue for him. It's an issue for our minds to comprehend, but it's not an issue for God. But that's the second resurrection. You don't want to be part of that second resurrection. You want to be part of the first resurrection. So all the wicked dead will be raised. That's the second resurrection to a physical judgment, to stand before God. And it says, and books were opened. Now, if you're an unbeliever, that should send shivers up your spine. Because everything that an unbeliever said, did, or thought, or even purposed to do, will have been recorded or is recorded. And it's going to be either read back or I don't know if it's going to be replayed or whatever, but somehow it's going to be re, re, you know, read back to them. And the great white throne judgment, as this is called, it's not going to be an opportunity. You're not going to have a lawyer standing next to you. You're not going to be able to say, but, but, but. There's going to be no excuses at the great white throne judgment because it's all there in the books, even the motives behind what people do. You know, there's lots of different books mentioned in the Bible. Psalm 56, verse 8 says this, You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Think about that. Every tear that you've cried, every, every, every time you sat alone, maybe you're just broken, you know, just weeping, those tears are recorded. God's recorded them. Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. There's a book that has every one of our days recorded in them. Malachi 3.16 Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them, so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So even this morning, as we're studying the Word of God together, as we've been sharing, maybe you're fellowshipping with one another, you're praying for one another, whatever, you're mentioning the Lord. He's listening, and he's recording it in a book. Now, <clears throat> now, that should be an encouragement, but if you're an unbeliever, 
and you sat here and you listened to this testimony, you listened to the word of God, it's written in the book. Hey, you were there Sunday, July, whatever the or June, whatever the date is today, 26, I think it is. You were there. Look at it's in the book. You heard the gospel once more. And at that time you said, I don't believe it, or I'm not ready to accept Christ, or whatever. It's there. It's there. You'll be held accountable. They'll be held accountable. But then it says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Everyone at this judgment will be judged according to what is written to those, what was written in those books. But then it says, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus this morning, your name is recorded in the book of life. And you won't go through this judgment. I want to finish with this passage here. Paul wrote this in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 14. It says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also uh, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And then listen to this having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Because everything that we've said is recorded as well. Every thought that we've had, every sin that we've committed, it's recorded at all. But you know what? If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, that stuff is nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. What a blessing that is. Everything written against us, was nailed to the cross when you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now maybe you're here today listening, either online, I know there's people that listen to this online, or you're here listening to me this morning. Maybe you did have a bad upbringing. Maybe, you know, you were disadvantaged growing up, and or you were part of a false teaching, a false religion, or you've had some false doctrine, um, it may very well have played a factor in who you are today. Okay? We don't, we don't want to diminish that. But at the core, at the very core of the issue, it's your heart that's the problem. It's not your environment. It's not your, it's not your parents. You can, they played a factor, obviously. But at the core, it's each and everyone's hearts. And the thing is, the Lord doesn't want to fix our hearts. He doesn't want to clean our hearts even. He wants to give us a new heart and a new beginning when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, if you're here this morning or if you're listening online and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, man, don't put it off because your eternity stands in the, hangs in the balance, I should say. So why don't you stand up? Let's go Lord in prayer and then uh, I'll have the worship team come up and we'll finish the morning.
Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. And, and Lord, um, I just we just see how the millennium, Lord, you, the reason why you, you're doing that, Lord, is to remove mankind's excuse, Lord. It, once again, it'll prove that it's not a fallen world that's caused our problems, Lord. It's, it's man's heart, the wickedness of men's heart. And I thank you that you're going to answer that and prove that and be vindicated in your judgment, Lord. I believe none of, no one standing before you will be able to have an argument with the man upstairs or ask you why or this or whatever. Lord, wicked men, wicked women, they're going to be speechless, have nothing to say when they stand before your throne. Lord God, what a relief, what a blessing for those of us that have a relationship with you, Lord, that we know that we won't even be there, Lord. Lord, all our sins were nailed on the cross with you. And that, Lord, we were buried with you in baptism and raised up to new life. And Lord, we rejoice in that. And I thank you for our salvation this morning, Lord. And I just give you this time now and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stay standing. Mm -hmm.